0: I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. In 2008, Marcus Westbury returned to his hometown of Newcastle, Australia, and found more than 150 empty buildings lining its two main streets. Three years later, the world's largest travel publisher, Lonely Planet, named it one of the top 10 cities to visit in the world. His new book, Creating Cities, tells the story of how Newcastle went from empty to thriving. The situation you found in Newcastle in 2008 is sadly not unusual in a lot of U.S. cities. There are a lot of empty buildings and too many Downtowns and center cities, most people would see this as a liability, but you saw it as an opportunity. Why?
1: Well, it goes back to the very personal experience that I was actually having at the time, which was that I wanted to start a project in one of those spaces, and I found it incredibly frustrating to get access to it or to them, Um, partially due to, you know, partially because of absentee landlords, partially because. People had given up trying to rent properties, partially because of bureaucracy. There's a whole bunch of reasons, but um, I've always known a community of people that are very active and want to try things and want to do things. And so, for me, all of those empty spaces looked a lot more like lost opportunities than you know a crisis. And um, you know, the model that we ended up setting up was about trying to address that.
0: You said you know a lot of people who want to. do things to do things with space where do you find those people
1: um well i I guess it's partially my background is that i've I've worked a lot in sort of diy arts culture media projects but in general these days it's not hard to find people that want to do things i mean i think social media makes that very easy it's not um you know it's not massively complicated i mean we 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 put a call out on facebook and we you know for, for the first wave of renew newcastle projects we had you know Ten or eleven times the number of applicants than we had properties. So, um, and that's been consistently the case I mean, everywhere in Australia where we've run a renew project or program. Where there's always been, you know, many, many, many more times. Even in the smallest of towns where you know there's not a huge population, there's many more people wanting to do things than there are vacant spaces. So, um, I've, I've never found that's an issue. I think um, the challenge is to kind of, you know, make it easy for them.
0: Mhm And how did you make it easy for them
1: so uh yeah, I mean that 's kind of the you know um, the nub of what we ended up getting to, which was the, there was a whole bunch of problems that we kind of diagnosed as to what was wrong with the city at the time um, a lot of bad incentives, a lot of um you know sort of confusing bureaucracy that people didn 't understand, and the basic problem that um, for a lot of property owners, it had reached this sort of death spiral where it wasn't really worth doing anything with their property because it was going to cost them more to do something with it than it, than um, they would ever earn or they would certainly earn in the short term from making it available. So we set up a not-for-profit company called Renew Newcastle and basically what the, that organisation does is it knocks on the doors of lots of private property owners and convinces them to lend us their properties so that we can lend them to a creative or community project of some kind. And not it's not just about the sort of cheap rent and space for experimentation, although that's really important. I mean, I think, um, you know, the the idea is that we just borrow buildings while they're empty so that people can at least get a chance to test an idea or try something that may or may not work. Um, but it's also that we help shepherd people through the process. I think a lot of the time, people were getting stuck on either they couldn't find property on terms that made sense for the sorts of projects they wanted to start, or they were getting stuck in the bureaucracy of not understanding what the compliance processes were, what the you know um, what permits they needed or didn't need. So a lot a lot of the work we do is about identifying the sorts of things we can do quickly, cheaply, and easily going out and, you know, stimulating, calling for, and facilitating a lot of that.
0: At night, Marcus, we've been talking uh, about a category of use that I'm going to call pre-commercial. It's it's activity that may need subsidy before the market kicks in. I'm wondering, in 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 the response you had to this lending program, in effect, lending property to people who, yeah. would, who would put it to use uh quickly cheaply easily was that typically is that typically what again does it fit into this pre commercial category or is it something that in fact is quite commercial that that would stand on its own and and earn revenue to support it from our
1: point of from our point of view we don't we, we were very clear really early in the piece that we didn't care whether your idea was commercially viable or not. So we were looking for projects. We were looking for community projects as much as we were looking for um, you know, commercially viable businesses. We had some basic criteria that you had to be doing something original, you had to be making what you do. Um, and that was actually like practically, it actually came out of partially a you know a kind of a creative context but it also came out of a practical desire to not be competing with existing businesses in the city so we're trying to stimulate a layer of original activity as opposed to you know just more shops selling the same stuff um, we were very conscious that a lot of the projects that we were going to support would never be commercially viable but they could actually be successful on a whole bunch of other terms so um, you know some of my favorite projects never made any money were never going to make any money but they you know b- built a really strong strong community around them. They gave a whole bunch of people opportunities to do things they would not otherwise be able to do. And then at the other end of the spectrum, um, I think we support, we have supported a whole bunch of, you know, uh, we're up to somewhere in the order of 30 or 40 projects that have come through the program and are now either owners of or, um, you know, have commercial leases on buildings in the city. So they're, they're ongoing um, viable businesses. And a lot of them probably didn't know that they were, I mean, you know, like, I, mean, I think sometimes we sort of we get over prescriptive. Like, we, we demand that everyone has a business plan and knows where they're going to be in three years' time. And a lot of the case, we actually found that supporting people who were willing to kind of open-endedly experiment with an idea actually meant that they found a path to viability that wasn't necessarily the one that they were, you know, starting out looking for. So I think... Um, I think there's an intrinsic, particularly in communities where there's a lot of vacancy and places are run down, there's an intrinsic value to stimulating activity. Uh, But over and above that, then out of that, often what emerges is a bunch of commercially viable stuff. And at the other end of the spectrum, what emerges is things that are valued by the community in such a way that the community, you know, through philanthropy, through subsidy, through through sweat equity, you know, continues to maintain and sustain them, even if they don't make money.
0: What kind of intensity of activity over what period of time is required to attract market interest to these uh, previously vacant places?
1: I don't think there's a simple formula for that. I, I don't think there's, there's one answer to that to that question, because... We found, you know, we we through Renew Newcastle and Renew Australia, we've done projects that have sat in isolation. Um, we've done projects that have been part of a cluster of twenty or thirty projects. Um, obviously, a cluster like bringing bringing things into proximity with each other creates all sorts of benefits, and and brings in foot traffic and activity, and then attracts investment, um, you know, big and small, and you know, financial and non financial investment, um, but. Also, we found this value... Like, there's often value in a standalone project. Like, you know, if you, if, you, if you get one project, you know, in the early days of Renew Newcastle, we had one project that was isolated. It was, you know, about a mile away from the, the other projects that we, we put down, and, and it was in a, a part of town that was, you know, quite a different dynamic. And yet, by seeding that project, it started to seed a little cluster of activity around it as well. So um, I, don't th- I don't think there's one... There's one answer to that. Um, I do think there's a huge value in shifting perception. So if you if you can change the perception of a place from a place where, you know, the narrative of Newcastle in 2008 was one that basically said, look, you know, you don't want to go there. It's depressing. You know, it's you'll be sad. You'll you'll be disappointed with how it's going backwards and and where you know where the city's going. To change that to a narrative of one that says. You need to go there. You know, you need to go and check out because there's all this new stuff that's opening, things that are happening, and 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 there's there's life and there's activity. Um, that is a real catalyst, I think, for changing the you know the fortunes of the place and encouraging new investment in all of its forms.
0: In your book, Creating Cities, which is wonderful, by the way, uh, is it out in the U.S. yet?
1: It's not. Well, it's um. It's available. Um, We were selling it through Amazon, but we're currently in the process of negotiating with U.S. agents and publishers about uh, re-publishing it over there. So um, you can order it from us, but um, uh, hopefully it will be picked up by a U.S. publisher.
0: Okay, and us is?
1: Uh, Creatingcities.net, just the website. Okay, Okay, great.
0: It's a terrific book, and in it you write, being from somewhere can become a powerful resource, that distinctiveness or even a particular local peach... Uh, that might once have been a liability is now an asset if handled well. What has changed to make that so? Well, I think the world's
1: much more connected. I mean, I think you know, I mean, I, there's, a, there's you know, there's a bit of a subtext in the book about that, that. You know, I grew up in a secondary city in Australia on the other side of the world, and I'm having this conversation with you now. And um, you know, once upon a time that would have been impossible. You know, like just the the technological and you know um, you know, the cost of that conversation would have been, you know, improbable. Um, So, you know, there's a huge value, and there's there's two layers to that. I think one is that increasingly it's possible to do anything from somewhere to anywhere. And what we found is that a lot of the projects that have become viable and sustainable, uh, you know, that are, are, you know, uh, commercial businesses and and self-perpetuating nowadays that we've helped seed are ones that are a little bit different to the ones that came a generation before them. They're not high street retailers, although they're occupying what were once high street retail shops. They're often um, they're makers or creators or designers or um, you know, artisans or whatever they may be, but half of their audience walks in the, the door and the other half is online and all around the world. And that has completely changed, I think, the what it is possible to do um, economically and practically in a whole bunch of communities. And I think The other side of that is that by encouraging and fostering distinctive, original, local content, local things, um, you create places that people value and want to seek out. And I think one of the most important things for me about Renew is that it's not a mechanism, you know, it's not a creative class thing in the the way that a lot of these things are often talked about. The, The aim of the program is not to attract you know hip artists from out of town to come in and transform it the, the aim of the program is to actually take what's here and lift it up a notch or two and um and give it an opportunity to go to another level so if you if you go down the you know the main mall of newcastle which was you know 20 empty shops seven years ago today it's full of distinctive original often locally made things and um, those people were, were all here, and they're, they're all—you know—they're all doing things that could only have happened here, and yet they're all part of dialogues and connections and, and movements um, that are that are global in terms of where they look and, and the outlook of them. And I think um, for places, I think particularly—I mean, I go to a lot of small regional towns in Australia and, you know, you go to and I'm sure you get the exact same phenomenon in the States where, you know, you go down the main street and there's a KFC, a McDonald's and a Subway and you don't know which continent you're on, let alone which town you're in. Um, I think if you can promote a layer of distinctive local, original culture and activity, then, then you start to create places that people have a reason to go to and that aren't just the same as everywhere else. And I think that's actually really important.
0: In your book, you also argue that instead of incentivizing the big thing that will fix everything, cities ought to be asking, how do you reduce the problems down to size so that individuals and small groups of people can tackle them with their own efforts? I thought that was a wonderful um, way to put it. Is is reducing the problems down to size what you did at Renew Newcastle?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, there was sort of a realisation moment. I'm not sure how well I captured it in the book, but somewhere early in the piece, you know, I realised that there, would, there was a big debate happening in the city about what the big thing that was supposed to fix everything was, you know. And so there's been big debates in the city about um, infrastructure and, you know, changing rail lines to light rail and, you know, you know, building mega developments and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. That every, you know, the big fix question of um what the you know what the one big project that's going to roll the dice and save everything is, um, and I I kind of you know if you if you read the local press and you follow the local news that was that was the level of debate we were having about what could and should happen in Newcastle. Um, if you walk down the street, there was a really basic, um, a much much more fundamental basic problem, which was that people who had imagination ideas and wanted to do them here weren't, and I think. To me, that's the base layer from which any city or town or community builds up. I'm not saying that the big things aren't important. I always have to be a bit careful because sometimes I come across as a, a you know, total skeptic about those things. I do think big infrastructure is important, but. Um you know, you can't wait for it. You can't... I mean, you know, like, I've got a I've got a running joke that the big-scale revitalisation of Newcastle is three to five years away, and it always has been. Like, it's always something yeah. that's going to happen. Um, but it never actually gets here. And so I think you have to start from the assumption that what you can do today, tomorrow, the next day, and the day after that... Is is the first thing you need to do, and and you know in the meantime, in the background and above that and around that, you have all the debates about the big fixes. But um, if you've got a if you've got a place where the people that are there who want to do things aren't doing them, um, you've got a you've got a, a really fundamental, you know, uh, a much more fundamental problem and a much easier problem to fix, I think, than um, some of that, that sort of big scale thinking.
0: What was the biggest hurdle you faced in reusing Newcastle's empty buildings?
1: Um, they, they were varied. I mean, surprisingly, I mean, you know, as, as is documented in the book, I mean, we, we sort of, we were lucky. You know, we were lucky in that often when we hit hurdles that were um, seemingly impassable, we we... we Ran into, uh, ran into the right people at the right time, and managed to work our way through them. Um, there are, there, there are, there are issues. So there are buildings in this city, some of the best buildings in the city, this buildings I love, that I can never do anything with because there is no cheap way of fixing them up. Like they're, you know, they're heritage listed buildings. They're, you know, you're spending millions before you can make them safe. Um, so we ended up often working with, you know, bad '80s buildings, not gorgeous you know, 18th, no, sorry, 19th century buildings um, that are sitting, still sitting rotting while we've been doing all this stuff around them. Um, though, so there are those kinds of issues. Um, there are issues with... Uh, it's not always easy to get the bureaucracy, you know, the policy makers, the funding people to kind of think this way, and I think uh, that's a constant battle despite the, you know, relatively... Uh, I I think we've demonstrated the success and the value of this this approach but because it's an approach that invests in process rather than promising outcomes I think it's often hard for people to understand how that works. Um, We obviously needed the consent of private property owners to lend us their buildings but we've been able to convince them to do that 70 something times now so um, that's you know a lot of the practical problems we had to solve were about thinking through the issues from the property owner's perspective like why why are they why is that building sitting empty well it 's sitting empty because there are some bad incentives that the property owner is responding to so how do you intervene in their bad incentive process how do you set up something that actually meets them where they're at as opposed to asking them to do something that's irrational for them uh, and you know a lot of that was about designing the right kind of structures and agreements and insurance and all of those things that we've had to sort out on the way through but once we've got the system in place it, it, it then has started to work reasonably well.
0: Marcus, again, I think your book, Creating Cities, is a terrific contribution to the uh, literature for people who are ready to change their cities and make them better. I really appreciate the work you've done in Newcastle. I presume you're doing that now in additional cities.
1: Yeah, so we we set up a uh, a not-for-profit company here called Renew Australia, which now works with other communities, and we've started to... Uh, I guess we're sort of sharing the systems and the knowledge that we've worked, you know, that we've we've developed around Australia with with other communities. So things like, you know, umbrella insurance and uh template legal agreements and, you know, basic sort of strategies for approaching property owners and things. So now there's uh there's a, a dozen or more communities in Australia that are formally affiliated with Renew Australia and then probably another dozen or more probably projects that have sort of been inspired by or spun off from it. And so um, it's, it's a model that is increasingly getting sort of grassroots traction in, in communities around this country and um, you know, hopefully uh,
0: can, can potentially inform what's happening in other places as well. Well, I think it will. Thanks so much for being our guest on Night Cities. Thank you very much. Marcus Westbury is the author of Creating Cities. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag NightCities and at C. Coletta. Sign up for our newsletter at nightfoundation.org forward slash podcast to get the five things you should know from this interview and others. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.